Good morning, everybody. I'm going to redraw your attention to what Sam just talked about and uh, pull out this thing that was in every handout. It's the Serve Gilroy insert. Uh, This is like Saturday, October 1st. And so uh, it's incredibly important that we get as many people participating in this as possible. I want to remind some of you, this may be new information, but before COVID and the kind of the shutdowns, we received from the Gilroy Chamber of Commerce an award, Nonprofit of the Year. Uh, and that was because of our work in the community. And so one of the important things here that we need to understand is that as we serve in the community, people notice so much to a degree that we get this nonprofit of the year award. And so it's giving a, a witness to our community of our love and care for them. So this is sort of the, the, the philosophy and vision behind things like this. So the reason why I say all of that is uh, many of you are notoriously late at signing up for things. And uh, we sort of need to know by Wednesday how many people are serving to break down how we uh, plan all of our projects. And so uh, before this service is done, please fill this out, drop it off in the offering basket. There's a QR code here. You could do a little phone thing and fill it out right now. It's the only time, it's the only exception to you taking out your phone during the church service. We're going to grant that for like the next two minutes. uh, And then it's back to normal rules and stuff like that. So uh, please, please take the time to do this. You can bring out your family. We'll be hanging out with the barbecue afterwards. Uh, so it's a priority. Okay, <clears throat> back to our journey in the book of Matthew. What's recently occurred is that Matthew has recorded Jesus performing miracles. He's teaching with authority. Most recently, he's walked on water. He's multiplied fi- uh, fish and bread and fed 4,000 people. And because of that, significant attention is being drawn to Jesus. And so in our section today, an official group from Jerusalem is going to go up to Galilee where Jesus is at and confront him. And that's where we pick up. The Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat. Okay. Tons, tons going on in just this incredibly short section. Uh, The Pharisees and the scribes are a part of kind of the religious elite, the in crowd, and they're coming from Jerusalem. The distance between Jerusalem and where Jesus is at is roughly 100 miles, so using kind of ancient travel methods, we're talking like at least 10 days worth of travel. So they're hearing news of this Jesus way up north in Israel, and they're like, we have to go check this out. Additionally, uh, the religious elite in Jerusalem understand that they, in, being in Jerusalem, are part of like the epicenter of the culture and theology and the religious life. So it's sort of like Northern Galilee would be like the, the city folk or the pastor from the megachurch in the big city going into like the country and confronting a pastor who leads a small church of 20, 27, 28 people. And so they're coming down. And they bring this question, as we'll see, there's accusatory kind of nature to it. Now, the heart of their question has to deal with this. Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat. One of the things you have to understand is that in Jewish law, there's laws regarding things that make one clean and unclean. And unfortunately, sometimes when we hear those categories we immediately think, okay, clean is good and unclean means sinful. You can be unclean 
in Old Testament law and not have committed a sin. So for example, let's say you do something um, that makes you unclean. It's not sin until then you would take your uncleanness and do something that's strictly forbidden, like go into the, the temple of God. So being the, the categories of clean and unclean don't map upon not sin and sin exactly, but you can because of your unclean nature, then go and break a law, and then it tra- transfers over to the sin category. But the issue here has to do with washing of hands before you eat. And the, the kind of, the question is, well, what happens if you were to, to have unclean hands, and then you were to eat? Wouldn't that make you unclean, and wouldn't you want to guard against that? And Jesus, why don't you and your disciples follow this? Now, there's another important piece of information in that they don't say, don't you know Jesus what's in the law? It says not to eat before washing your hands. They don't go down that route. They talk about breaking the tradition of the elders. So what's the tradition of the elders? The tradition of the elders is basically the oral tradition that's developed alongside of the written law in the Old Testament. So the written law in the Old Testament is Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Those five books form the Pentateuch or the Torah, and there's roughly 613 rules, laws, statutes, ordinance in that section. What develops is these kind of oral traditions that help you flesh out what the written law actually means. Now, oftentimes this gets a bad rap, like these are just traditions made by men, but you have to understand the intent and motivation behind it was, was originally good. So let me, let me explain. Let's say there's a command, which there is. Do not work on the Sabbath. An initial question might be, well, what do you mean by I shall not work on the Sabbath? Like define work. Does that mean my nine to five? Yes, you can't go to your nine to five on Sabbath. Well, can I put in like a couple hours? No. Uh, can I pick weeds in my backyard? No. Well, what if I kind of find it relaxing because I have a sit down job uh, during the nine to five and actually like, no, can't pick the weeds. Uh, can I travel? Depends. What's the travel for? Um, how much can I travel? And there is actually traditions that would develop that would say 2,000 cubits or roughly one kilometer. And then after that, it becomes sin. So the preciseness of the interpretation of these laws can be overwhelming, but understand the original intent and heart behind it is just to say, I want to follow God's law. And there's all these commands in the Old Testament that quite frankly, sometimes are difficult to get like precisely right. So in wanting to honor the spirit of the law, traditions develop. At the time of Jesus, there's, there's tons of these. Now, what appears to have happened is that some traditions developed around washing hands because in the law, there's no command that says everyone, all of the time, whenever they eat, have to wash their hands before they consume the food. There is, however, laws that talk about priest needing to wash their hands and feet and do this kind of ritual cleaning and bathing before you would do certain tasks in the temple. So out of that, some traditions develop. And you can see how it works, right? Because you would say, oh, there's a command in the law that says priests must wash their hands before they do X, Y, Z. Well, the scriptures also say that Israel is a, is a nation of priests, that's what they were designed for. So we're not priests in the same sense of the priests that serve in the temple, but we are all as human beings a priest in some sense. So 
what's true for them might apply to me. How do I, who, don't, who doesn't work in the temple, then kind of obey that in my everyday life? Well, let's go through kind of ritual ceremonial purification stuff before we eat food. So that's how the tradition develops. And we're so far removed from this that it, sound, it can sound bizarre. But just know that for many people, that when these were originally developing, it, it was done with good reason, trying to figure out how to obey God's law. But it can, like anything, can get out of hand. So they have this question to Jesus, why aren't, why aren't you guys doing this? Why aren't you guys and your disciples washing your hands? And um, by asking the questions about the disciples, there's probably an accusation that Jesus isn't doing it well. And we know from a document that comes to us a couple hundred years later from this called the Mishnah that at least within a couple hundred years and maybe at the time of Jesus, there was like precise instruction on how to wash your hands. You would get water and you would pour it so it was moving. It was like living water and the directions would say you'd pour it from your wrist down and let the water flow off of your hands. So Jesus, your disciples aren't doing it. Why? Jesus, Jesus responds. He answered them, and why do you break the commandments of God for the sake of your tradition? For God commanded, honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if anyone tells his father or his mother, what you would have gained from me is given to God, he need not honor his father. So for the sake of your tradition, you have made void the word of God. Jesus comes back like hard, like he's not messing around. And he, he does this typical kind of, you get asked a question, but you answer a question back. So he's answered a specific question about washing hands, and he comes back, well, you break the commands of God. So you're asking me about oral tradition, and you're breaking the written law of God. And he just goes at him. I mean, this is huge. This is something where like, people would, watching would be like, oh, man. He just said that to the Pharisees and the scribes from Jerusalem. And Jesus points back to one of the commandments honoring your father and mother. And this commandment was so important that the penalty of death in Old Testament law was associated with this. It's heavy. It's heavy. Like you honor your mother or, and father or else. Now what makes this difficult for us to understand is that we approach the fifth commandment as modern people in a fundamentally different way than ancient people. So we have to do some work on what the fifth commandment actually was, which may be confusing because you're like, it means honor your mother and father. Just how, what's complicated about that? Well, as modern people, we typically apply the fifth commandment to children. We teach little kids like honor your mother and father, which is fine and I'm sure is covered with the fifth commandment. But we know from extra biblical writing and literature from the intertestamental period, so all kind of the Jewish writing surrounding the period leading up to Jesus, that there was one primary way people understood the fifth commandment. And it wasn't about teaching your eight-year-old to honor mom and dad. It was about adult children caring for their elderly parents. So to honor your mother and father meant to an adult child, you honor them by caring for them when they can no longer care for themselves. Like, you have to understand that for no ancient person was needing to tell their eight-year-old, son, you better remember to honor me. Like, it just didn't work that way. And there's many cultures around the world today that still work that way. 
And you also have to understand that adolescence, this thing called, that, that exists between the age of 13 and originally at, when adolescence, the term was kind of invented, it was like, there's this, this kind of weird period between 13, 15, 16 years of age. In our culture, we've extended adolescence, so it's like this 10-year thing where people just aren't expected to become adults forever. That didn't exist in the ancient world. It's like, son, you know your 13th birthday is here. You've already been working for a couple years under me, my apprentice. We got someone picked out for you to get married to. So it was just a different world. All that to say is the fifth commandment wasn't this command that parents were needing to teach their children. It was reminding adult children that your parents may reach a day where they can no longer care for themselves. And for you to abandon them in their hour of need, in desperation, that's like a hideous, grotesque sin. This is continued into the New Testament for the early church, by the way. It was in 1 Timothy 5.8. Paul's writing to, to Timothy, who's, who's pastoring churches. If anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. So do you feel the, the, the matched intensity there from like the Old Testament law and, and New Testament? It's like, if you don't take care of like your direct family in your household, you're worse than an unbeliever. Now, there's certainly exceptions to this. This is, this is how the need for like the oral traditions develop. Well, you know, does this, does this mean universally always true? And the answer would, of course, would be no, because let's say your father is addicted to some substance. He's addicted to alcohol or gambling or drugs. They're not saying you just continue to enable this person to ruin their life and recklessly spend this money. But the spirit, you have to understand the spirit, what's the spirit of the command? There may come a day where your parents can no longer care for themselves. And if you don't try to help them, you're worse than an unbeliever. It's heavy. Again, you have to take that and use biblical wisdom to say, how does that map upon my situation? different phases of life and there's all kinds of questions like, well, to what degree do I have to support my parents? How should I take care of them? You know, those are, those are questions to ask, but just know that there's a spirit and a principle in this. And this is echoed from the fifth commandment. Remember, uh, fifth commandment, honor your mother and father, it's the one that has a promise with it and you will live a long life in the land. People mistakenly make that to be a promise. Like, well, if I honor my mom and dad, then the Bible promises me I'll live a long life. And that's demonstrably not the case because there's people who love their parents and honor them and die in a car accident. But it's a, it's a principle that generally holds true. If a people, if a people and a culture build healthy families where parents lovingly raise children and those children in turn grow up and care for their parents in their old age, they model that care for their parents to their children who then will be more likely to treat them with that honor and care when it's their time. And so what it's saying is you build a society and a culture where these, are value, these things are valued and it will go better for you. In principle, you will live a longer, better life when there's healthy families caring for each other. 
So let's get back to the text with that information in our head. He answered them, why do you break the commandments of God for the sake of tradition? For God commanded, honor your father and mother. Whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if anyone tells his father or his mother, what you have gained from me is given to God, he, he need not honor his father. So for the sake of your tradition, you have made void the word of God. Now the confusing part and the key to understanding this is the section in the middle where he says, you're supposed to honor your mother and father, but this is what you've done. You say, what you would have gained from me is given to God. Now there's a technical term here that in the Gospel of Mark it's used in the parallel passage, and the term is called korban, and it's a Hebrew transliteration that just means offering. So what's happening is there's adults, adult children, who have either money, resources, or land, and they're saying, this is korban, therefore I do not have to care for mom and dad. And by declaring it korban, which means offering, they're saying, this is promised to God. This resource is promised to God, therefore I can't use it to care for mom and dad. So how would this work? We don't know exactly how this Corbin thing was working, but we have a general idea. Let me give you some examples. Let's say there's a son who um, he has some money and he, he goes to the temple and he says, I pledge this money to God. And then mom and dad are in need. He goes, sorry, mom and dad, the money that I would use to help you, it's tied up, it's promised to God. And then when mom and dad die, I break my vow and ask for forgiveness and take the money back. Or a different version of it could be, let's say there's a, a, a son who, he promises to the temple that when he dies, this land that he owes will go to, to the temple treasury. But then, 15 years later, mom and dad are in desperate need of care, and he needs to sell that land in order to provide for mom and dad. So he goes to the temple and says, I, 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 need, I need the land back. I know I promised that upon my death, the, you guys would all get it, but I need it back. I have to honor my mother and father. And then the people in charge of the temple go, you can't take that back. You promised it to God. You can't get it back. So it may be that there's adult children who are guilty of manipulating the system. It may be that the Pharisees and the religious establishment are guilty, or it could be both parties are in on it together. You let us use your money in the temple treasury for the next 20 years. We'll give you a little short interest rate here. So the corruption could be ever. We don't know exactly. Nevertheless, there's something incredibly important going on. The people are pitting the fifth commandment against the third commandment with the traditions of men for selfish gain. The fifth commandment is honor your mother and father. The third commandment is do not take the Lord's name in vain. What, what's happening is they're saying, you made a vow to God. Oftentimes when we think about not taking the Lord's name in vain, we associate that with like saying a name for God with a bad word, which is, which is bad. You don't want to be doing that. But that's not the heart of this. The heart of it would be making a, an oath, a promise, swearing by the name of Yahweh and then breaking that vow or, or using his name just to kind of say the, 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 the oath or vow and then go on and do something different. 
And so what's happening is they're saying, wait a second. Yes, you're supposed to honor your mother and father, but you made a vow to Yahweh. You can't break the third commandment in order to honor the fifth. And then you insert some traditions of men, and now you have this, this sick way to create a loophole where you can withhold honor that is due mother and father. Does that make sense? It's quite complicated. It's quite complicated. You are, you are pitting, you are making the fifth commandment fight the third, finding loopholes in order to produce selfish gain. So how does Jesus respond to this? You hypocrites, well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, the people honor me with their lips, but their hearts, their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. So Jesus goes way back and quotes the prophet Isaiah when Isaiah was prophesying against wicked things in his day and says, no, you thought Isaiah was talking just to these guys? He's talking to you. This prophecy is being fulfilled in the way you act, which again is heavy. This is the official delegation from Jerusalem, Pharisees, scribes, religious elite, all of that. And Jesus quotes the prophet Isaiah's condemnation against them. If you were there, it's the second time in this scene where you're going, oh my, it's about to go down. Like jaws are dropping. Like this got real quick. It's, it's like, you know, when it's Christmas time and your family's all there and you've made some things, hey, we don't talk about this, we don't talk about this, but then you just at the dinner table talk about it. It's like, oh man, it's about to go down. So as everyone's shocked, Jesus calls people to them. He gathers, he says, okay, listen up, listen up. I'm gonna teach, I'm gonna teach you what's true. Hear and understand, it is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth. This defiles a person. Then the disciples came and said to him, do you know that the Pharisees were offended when you heard, when they heard this saying? He answered, every plant that my heavenly father has not planted will be rooted up. Let them be alone. They are blind guides. And if the blind lead the blind, both will fall into a pit. Heavy. These are hard hitting words. These people are blind people leading the blind. You're all going to fall into a pit and die. And so Jesus gets to the heart of the issue. He's saying that it's not something from the outside that comes in that truly defiles a person. And this is so like earth shattering that like people are even having a hard time following Jesus. Peter comes up to him and and is like, then the disciples came to him and said, do you know that the Pharisees were offended? Like, did you, did you know what? We're just checking because, you know, sometimes people say things that they don't actually mean. Is this one of those instances, Jesus? Because maybe you didn't mean it like this, but I heard it like this. And Jesus like, blind leading the blind, everyone's going to die. He's cutting to the heart of the issue. He goes on. The section ends with this. But Peter said to him, explain this parable to us, which is weird because it's, it wasn't really a, a parable in the sense of a parable. He just said the blind leading the blind. It's almost as if what Jesus is saying about the outside thing not being the contaminant that defiles you is so radically new 
he's still not getting it. Explain this parable to us. And he said, are you also still without understanding? Like, I made it as clear as day. Do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is expelled? But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual morality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person, but to eat with unwashed hands does not defile anyone. So he's getting to like the innermost part of you. That is the part that's the the problem. And on a kind of religious historical development level, this this is huge. You could see why the disciples are having a hard time understanding. Like it's not the things that on the outside that are inherently the problem. That's not the root of the issue. The root of the issue is what's inside of you. It's your heart that produces evil thoughts. And then it's interesting because um, as he says that, after he says it's your heart that, that, that produced these evil thoughts, then he lists things like murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness. These are all the other commands. It's like all your 10 commandment breaking is rooted from your own heart. And this is sort of the opposite way we think. Like, as modern people, we like to convince ourselves of things like this. I know I said some things that I shouldn't, and I do some things that I shouldn't, but you know my heart. My heart's good, just my external deeds are somehow divorced from my heart. This is how we talk about it. I've done this, this, and this. Hey, I, sometimes this happens, sometimes this happens, but you, we all know my heart is right. And Jesus is saying the opposite. It's, it, it, and the story's demonstrating the opposite. It's like, actually, no, it's easier to do the external thing right. It's far harder to fix the heart. And you do this all the time. You be nice to people you don't like. You just try to avoid issue. It's not out of like love for your neighbor that you're polite. And Jesus cuts all of this down in the Sermon on the, the Mount, right? Oh, you're, you're doing good because you haven't done the external act of adultery. But I tell you, if you have lust in your heart, you're guilty. You think you're great because you haven't murdered anybody. Fantastic. You don't murder people. I tell you, if that you have hatred in your heart towards your brother, then you're in danger of hellfire. See, it's an inverse of the way we like to think about it and the way we pride ourselves on it. Oh, I'm, I mess up here, mess up here, but you know, on the inside, it's, I'm all good. Let's, no, from the heart come the evil thoughts. And then the evil thoughts made and produced in the heart manifest into the world as murder, sexual morality, slander, lying, all of these things. And Jesus says, that's what defiles the person. So it's a big problem. Because if, if it was just like, you could be morally pure, just make sure to wash your hands before you eat, it'd be like, Fantastic. We'll just do it. Get out of the way. No problem. We're all good. But it's, it's deeper than that. It goes into the innermost, to the heart. And especially in our culture, we, don't wanna, we do not want to listen to Jesus at this point. We don't even, Jesus is addressing sins of the heart. 
And we don't even like to use the word sin. We don't even like the category. Nevertheless, like when you're honest with yourself, you know deep down, like I've been wronged and I've wronged people. I haven't been right in my actions, in my deeds. It's interesting, we deny, like we deny the category of sin and in doing so, we feel guilt and shame and then follow that by denying the very categories that produce these feelings in us that we intuitively feel. Like people, I don't believe in sin, but yet our society is overwhelmed with guilt and shame. And so in a very real sense, you come to the realization that there is no amount of ritual washing that I can do that can clean what's really wrong with me. There's no amount of hand washing, no amount of ritual washing or being made clean externally that can deal with the dirt on my hands because the filth on these hands is greater than just mere physical material dirt. And in the Old Testament, the, the prophets and the people who wrote the Psalms, they knew this. They knew this. This wasn't like Jesus came on in the New Testament and reminded people that, oh, there's a big trick. You thought it was all about this, uh, but I'm concerned with the heart. Like this was God's issue from day one. So in the Psalm, you read things like this. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Which you know on a very practical level is the case. Because like we say we'll do things and we don't do them. We make promises and then we break them. Lord, I'm going to be a better father. And then the next day you're, you're acting the same way. Lord, I'm going to be a better, I'm going to be a better mom. And it's like uh, January 1st, Lord, I'm going to read my Bible every day. Your heart will chase after other things like immediately. Like we intuitively know this to be the case. Jeremiah 4.14, the prophet says, Oh, Jerusalem, look at the imagery. Wash your heart from evil that you may be saved. How long shall your wicked thoughts lodge within you? See all this overlapping imagery. There's these wicked thoughts, they're inside of us. And then Jeremiah is saying, you need to wash not just yourself in this ceremonial manner. He's not, and make no mistake, he's not upset with the law. They're not anti-law or anti-tradition. They're anti-traditions that enable you to disobey God's written law. And so Jeremiah is saying, no, we have to find a way to wash our hearts. Psalm 51, deliver me from blood guiltness. The Hebrew word there is just for blood, but the translators are, are trying to get you. It's like the images, there's blood on you. This is David writing, there's blood on my hands, O God. O God of my salvation and my tongue will sing out loud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise for you will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. You will not be pleased with burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite spirit. O God, these you will not despise. So the psalmist is getting at the heart of the matter. It's like, no, I need a different type of heart. Something has to change here. The beginning of Psalm 51, which this is a psalm written by David after the sin of Bathsheba and her husband Uriah. So adultery and murder. 
says, have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. So David, deep in despair because of his own actions and sins, he calls out to the mercy of God. Just be merciful on me. I don't deserve it. I haven't earned anything. Be merciful on me and wash me. Wash my heart. Wash me on the inside. Wash my entire being. So do you feel this? There is a filth on our hands, on us, that cannot be washed away with mere water. It takes something totally different. Now, because of this, the Hebrew prophets, especially around the time of the destruction of the temple, which is 586 B.C., and the destruction of the, of, of the temple in Jerusalem was due in large part to the, to the rebellious nature of Israel at that time, the prophets begin pointing forward to a day. And they begin saying things like this. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness. This is God speaking. And from all your idols, I will cleanse you, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Again, do you see, do you see the, the themes and, and the issues they're wrestling with and the images they use? I'm going to sprinkle, I'm gonna put clean water on you and you shall be clean from all uncleanness, from your idols, so from your moral sins. I will clean you and I'm gonna give you a new heart because that's the issue. You need to be made new. Jeremiah Another prophet from this time period says it like this, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant, they broke it. Though I was their husband, declares the Lord, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, know the Lord, for they shall know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. So what are the prophets pointing to? They're saying, we're guilty. It's not just on the, the outside, these external things that, that, that make us unclean. There's a host of these other things and we need to be washed clean. And the way they envisioned that was that one day God would establish a new covenant. And when God established this new covenant, because they had broken the old covenant, that in the establishing of the new covenant, he would wash them give them a new heart, forgive them of their sins, and he says, I will remember their sin no more. So you see all the images and themes flooding together. We need a new covenant, and we need new hearts because we've broken this old covenant, because there is sin that we've committed that can't just be washed away with water. We need some type of other cleaning. So people are waiting and longing for 500 years after this prophecy is given for a new covenant, a washing that brings, apart a, brings upon us a new heart and the forgiveness of sins. 
Now imagine longing for that and waiting for it for 500 years. And then the night Jesus was betrayed, he says this. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise the cup, after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. And just how maybe the disciples' jaws dropped when Jesus confronted the Pharisees, we don't know, but maybe in this instance, when Jesus uses the words, this is the new covenant, and it's the new covenant based upon my blood, they started to connect some of the dots in the Hebrew scriptures. Is this what we have been longing for? This new covenant where God would renew his vows to his people, when he would wash away our sins, he would remember them no more. And it was. But the twist of the story is that the way God would accomplish this was a way that no one would would ever imagine. Because it would be God himself in the person of the Son who would bring about that victory by going into the source of all uncleanness going into the source of of death itself. Jesus contends with the forces of death because the battle is with the three great enemies of old, Satan, sin, which leads to death. And so he goes to the cross, and by the work of his hands, through his life and death and resurrection, he goes into the source of death and all uncleanness and all rebellion and sin itself, and comes out on the other side victorious. Therefore, the early church can say things like this. Titus 3, 5 through 7. He saved us. Jesus has saved us. Not because of works done by us in our righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. See, uh, if you have good theology, you'll say something like, I don't believe in works-based salvation. Works don't save you. And fair enough, but in another sense, I want to say, no, absolutely, I believe in works-based salvation. Of course I believe in works-based salvation. Works are what save you. The problem is it's just not your works. They don't make the cut. It was the work of another. It was the work of the Lord Jesus Christ who gives us a new covenant and promises a new heart. And listen to the language. He pours out on us now what? Not water on our risk to make simple hands clean. He pours out on our entire being his Holy Spirit. And he will remember our sins no more. Because there is a type of guilt, of filth that cannot come off of our hands with mere water. But by the work of Jesus Christ, by the work of the hands of another, by the work of the cross, You can receive grace and forgiveness, a new heart, and the washing not of water, but of his spirit. 
He pours out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Which is what grace is all about. You didn't earn it. It's not your works. It's not your deeds. No amount of hand washing was ever going to save you. But Christ did. And so what do we make of, of kind of the big picture of this passage for today? It reminds us of, of grace and what Christ has done. He's promised a new covenant and a new heart and a new type of washing and all of these images are beautiful. But you also have to come back to the, to the confrontation with the Pharisees that says there is a way in which you can be doing all the things right on the outside and still not be dealing with what matters most. And there's a temptation for people then and for us today to do what we would call kind of right external religious traditions, which aren't bad, maybe bad in and of themselves, but they, they get you to focus on this while neglecting what's here. So for example, like I just plugged at the beginning of the sermon, Serve Gilroy, Right? But trust me, there's, there's some of you and some people who rather than deal with maybe some of the core issues that's really wrong, rooting from the heart, you just sign up for a bunch of church activities and you're doing all the churchy things on the outside. And it's like you're trying to prove to yourself that it's maybe I'm, I'm okay. It's like it doesn't work that way. It doesn't work that way. So what I'd like to do before we take communion is just ask you to examine your hearts and which is great as we lead into communion because when we take communion, we're supposed to examine our hearts and make sure that we're right with God and you know, begin to, to ask yourself and ask the Lord to help you to see are there th- things in my heart right now, Lord, that aren't right? And see, the good news is because of his spirit and the work of the Lord Jesus in your life, you do have the ability to grow in sanctification. By his spirit, you do have the power to confront things that still may be lurking inside. It's not hopeless. He's given you, he's poured out his spirit. One of the ways we best honor God with our hearts and empower us to defeat these kind of sin issues in our life is we, we reflect back onto what we just talked about. We reflect on grace and what he did for us. So when David sinned greatly, and in that passage that we read, there's a section where he cries out to God and he says, restore unto me the joy of thy salvation and renew a right spirit within me. So you remember the joy of your salvation, what Christ has done on your behalf, his work, his hands. And then you allow that to empower you and mold you and shape you to continue to do that sort of renovation of the heart. Let's stand as we take communion. On the night Jesus was betrayed, he took bread. This is my body, it's given for you. Take this and remember. So our first step is remembering the work of someone else. It wasn't our work that saved us. 
our deeds weren't going to make the cut. Our hands were guilty. But by his hands, by his work, he has made a way for us. And so we remember. Then Jesus takes the cup. He says, this is the new covenant, the new covenant of my blood. And he washes us with the new covenant of his blood. And he pours out his Holy Spirit upon us. And so, Lord, we ask you to continue to empower us as your followers for the work of the ministry of your kingdom and of the church. We give our allegiance to you. Father, we now turn to worship. And we want this to be a time where we honor you. If honoring mom and dad is giving them what is rightly due to them for what they've done to us, then for us to honor you is merely to give to you what is due to you. All praise, all glory, all honor. May the name of your son Jesus be properly honored in this time. It's in his name we pray. Amen.